What's up, y'all? And welcome to Black and Intellectualish, a podcast about race, education, culture, and whatever else comes up. I'm your boy, MP. And I'm teaching. What is up, man? This has been a while. Yeah, I almost forgot what I was supposed to say. I definitely almost <laughs> forgot what the intro was. <laughs> How have you been? I've been good. It's um, been a long time since we've caught up, but generally it's doing well, getting in the swing of professor life. Mm-hmm. And then also since we talked, I've gone to Jamaica, I think. I've gone to Canada. Yeah, you were all over the world, child. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm back in the dirty south. So <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? How have you been? I'm okay. The last couple of months, the last few weeks specifically have been really tough. I think we started with a pause mainly because I think you, you might have been traveling. And so we were like, oh, let's not record. And then shortly after that, my dad got sick with COVID. And so my wife and I were back and forth to Alabama on the road to check on my dad. He ended up being hospitalized and put on a ventilator. And um, unfortunately, he uh, passed away at the beginning of March. And so that was and is something that is really tough, something we're still trying to yeah. push through and and deal with. My dad and I were really close. And so that's been the hardest part. Without going too deep into personal life and, and things of that nature, my dad had kidney disease that he was diagnosed with when he was, it was back in the, the early 90s. And so they had told my dad he was going to be on dialysis by 91 and that he might not live too much longer after that. And so f- to have my dad all these years and for him to not have needed dialysis or anything until 2016. And then in 2016, I was able to donate my kidney to him for, for me to have him for that long when the doctors thought something else was going to happen was just a blessing. Yeah, definitely. I know it's tough loss and definitely pray that you just do whatever you need to do to take care of you and your family. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are praying for you and thinking about you. So glad you're back today, but also know that whatever you need, you take it and do whatever is necessary. Yeah, it's it's been tough. I think this has been one of the things that I've wanted to get back to the most. For me, I'm ready to get back to some sense of normalcy, but it's also tough because you have your small moments of something will happen and I'll think, oh, I need to pick up my phone and, and tell my dad this, or I'm going to call my dad while I'm walking across campus. And I have those moments probably at least once a day. And that is probably one of the things that's the hardest. I also, we don't have time to get into my weird dreaming habits, but I have something called lucid dreams where I wake up in my dream and know that I'm dreaming and I can change my dreams around and imagine different things happening and it appears for me. And so Honestly, the craziest thing over the past week or so has just been lucid dreaming and being able to conjure my dad inside my dreams. Mm. Half of the listeners are going to think I'm insane. Anybody who knows what lucid dreaming is and can do it will understand. But I've been able to like talk to my dad, tell him I love them, been able to hug my dad. And while I know cognitively that's not my dad, I don't believe in, uh, no no shade to anybody who does, but I don't believe in like spirits and talking to the dead. But I know that has given me some closure, right? Just that ability to, in that lucid dreaming state, to have that closure with my dad because he went on the ventilator and I was able to pray over him, talk to him, but I never got to hear his voice talking back to me after 
talking to him before he went into the hospital and we thought he was going to get better. I hadn't had a chance to like have a conversation with him. So I don't want to ramble about that. I'd also am not, I don't know how much I'm really trying to tell people about my personal life, but it's just one of those things where, you know, I know folks look for this podcast and are like, man, where is it at? And I, I don't necessarily feel like I owe anybody anything, but I do think that because I love this podcast and I love the, the people who listen to it. I did want to make sure that I shared that had happened. And we're trying to bounce back. And everything is always going to be different forever. But to the extent that I can get back to some sense of normalcy, we're trying to do that. Definitely going back to therapy too, though, since I need it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing. And I think just reflecting on the podcast itself, like one of the things we are really transparent about is like taking care of ourselves and being aware and talking about self-care and the things that bring us joy and also the things that hurt us and bring us pain. And I think I appreciate the honesty about that. And also, as you know, I said earlier, like the reality is this is a thing that we choose to do, but also like we know that sometimes when we need to, we may step away. And that was just one of the moments. And so, yeah. you know, I appreciate you sharing with the listeners why we've been MIA. But as I said, we're back and <laughs> we'll um, be back in the swing of things and we're I'm excited to look forward. Yeah, yeah. And you were just reminding me that this is <laughs> two years Black and intellectualist. So that's really dope to even that's, think about. Yeah. It's funny that we started this at like the beginning of the pandemic, not even yeah. knowing like our first few episodes, just being like, what is going on? And that we're two years in. And it's been really exciting. I'm sure that it will continue to evolve. Um, as we evolve and go into different transitions of life. But I'm excited about that as well. I don't know that there's a clean way to transition, but <laughs> I think anybody, yeah, I don't even know what the podcast artwork is going to be for this week. But if you have been alive and breathing on the planet Earth, this past week, then you already know what we have to talk about. <laughs> We're going to put an intellectualist spin on it as usual. But within this kind of segment that we do call pop culture and theory, really got to get into this Will Smith and Chris Rock debacle. Yeah. So I saw this meme that works because we're actually recording on Wednesday before this episode releases. It was like, can we please wrap up any discussions about the slap incident by the end of the day, <laughs> Thursday, signed management. <laughs> so <laughs> just to say, if you when you do listen to this, it might feel a little late, but we are not that late. It's it's Wednesday, so only three days after. But yeah, as you said, MP, this has just been like everywhere to the point where I do feel that meme and that like we will talk about it, but I'm also okay with talking about it briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with talking about it briefly as well. I think a couple of things that should be said from the outset, because I do think we're going to have a different perspective on this than any of the ones that I've heard. I am aware that Will Smith has apologized. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily interested right now in reading his apology. It was a great apology. If you want to read it, everybody should go read it. It's on his Instagram. You know how they do. It's black background, white text, <laughs> and it's good. I think what we wanted to do is really talk about this from the perspective of what does it mean to protect black women and how 
Will Smith's actions map onto conversations we've had, I think, around hypermasculinity, Black men, protecting Black women, and all of those things. To sit that aside for one second, I want to be very clear to the audience, because nobody that I've heard has been willing to say what I'm about to say, with the exception of a couple of people who I won't name, which is that if I had been in Will Smith's shoes, I would have smacked Chris Rock. I want to be very clear <laughs> that I would have smacked Chris Rock. Now, do I think that's right? No. Do I think that Chris Rock deserves to get smacked? Mm, you know, I know that that sounds crazy. I don't necessarily think that was quote unquote right. I think that we can have a conversation about right and wrong as people looking from the outside in. And a lot of times it's easy for us to talk about what somebody should have done and what is out of character and what is inappropriate and unprofessional. And all of that's cute. I know as somebody who has a wife who has health issues, that if somebody were on a stage and decided to make a joke at the expense of my wife and it touched on one of her health issues, it's go time. And I'm not probably going to apologize as quickly as Will Smith did unless I have a publicist because I'm going to feel like I should have hit him. And so... I guess the reason I'm saying that is that I've heard a lot of conversations around Jada didn't need Will to do that to protect her and, and Will Smith was out of pocket and it was unprofessional and he's Hollywood royalty and all of those perspectives are valid. I'm saying as a person who thinking about my wife and her health condition and somebody making a joke at her expense and she's not happy and I'm sitting there, I think I would have ended up smacking Chris Rock and having to apologize for it at a later date. And so I guess that's like my main reaction to the situation was when I saw the video, Chris Rock make the joke and I was like, yo, that's not cool. And then you see Will Smith get up and I'm thinking Will Smith is about to say something on the mic. I'm thinking he's about to take the microphone and say, yo, keep my wife's name out of your mouth, which he said later with a little bit more colorful language. <laughs> But instead, he hit Chris Rock. And when, he, when the hit connected, my instinct was, yes, that's exactly what was supposed to happen <laughs> when somebody does that. And then I was like, oh, that's not OK. Right. Like Then I had the reaction all the normal people had. People are going to think I'm crazy, I'm sure. But I just I think there's humanity in recognizing and just owning that. that. Yes, I'm the Will Smith in that situation. I'm not the Chris Rock who takes it on the chin and continues to do my monologue. I'm Will Smith in that situation. I definitely appreciate that perspective. And I think given like your own personal experience, one, being a husband and then two, being a husband to um, your wife who has had challenges and also can probably connect to that in ways that other people can who are like making hypotheticals. Yeah. I think for me, maybe thinking about being Jada in this scenario, one, I would not expect my husband to hit someone. Mm. But I do think I would expect that my husband would have some kind of reaction. Mm. And the reaction, in my mind, I thought would have been like more words. Like I was watching the Oscars when it happened, but I was working or doing something on my laptop. And so I had not heard the preceding joke, but I just heard like commotion. I looked at the TV saw that Will was walking to his seat and then everything else was censored out. Mm. And I immediately went on Twitter to be like, what <laughs> happened? Because I was so confused because I couldn't hear anything. And right. then 
is I, I didn't really understand was it like a skit or whatever and then when I heard and I saw Will's like anger I was like okay he's really mad and so without getting into like where we I think the bulk of where we want to talk about I think just initially thinking about putting myself as like Jada mm-hmm. I don't know that I would be like upset with my husband but I don't think there's also like women voicing their opinions and like oh my husband better I I don't think that would be my perspective given that I think things can escalate and thankfully they didn't escalate violently in terms of Chris Rock's response but I feel like as a partner I don't know that I would encourage my partner to respond that way though if my partner responded that way I could say I understand like you were mad and I appreciate you defending me but I would say I don't think my initial reaction was like that was my expectation I don't think that would be my expectation of my man but I think we're going to delve into people's expectation and the framing of this incident yeah yeah and and folding my way into that like my wife even said that's not what she would have wanted me to do right like I was like oh I would have went up there and smacked Chris Rock too she's like I wouldn't have wanted that I don't like when there's a whole lot of commotion or hoopla because of me I don't enjoy that that's not something that um, makes me feel good or makes me feel defended or whatever and it made me realize and this may help us get into this conversation but it made me realize that my reaction is not dependent on that like I actually and this might sound weird and selfish but I actually don't care whether or not that's what she wants me to do because it's almost more about my it's almost more about that happening is offending my wife, but offending my wife is then vicariously offending or an affront to my own masculinity and pride, right? And I think it's like this natural, immediate thing where I was like, oh yeah. And and she goes, well, I wouldn't want you to do that. And I was like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> like I'm still doing it. And then I realized that, oh, it was, then that means it's for me. And I need to process why I'm doing that for me. Cause I think the the weirdest thing was hearing people immediately go to, what does it mean to protect Black women? And I was like, I don't think this is about protecting Black women. Like, I'm doing this for me. <laughs> I think you got to the heart of the discussion. I haven't heard people really delve into that. So the question, as you said, MP, that we will delve into a little bit is, what does it mean to protect Black women? Which mm-hmm. a lot of the conversations on social media platforms like Twitter or Clubhouse have centered around protecting black women and I've seen comments such as like you can't ask black men to protect black women and then say how they do it to this is not protecting black women so I've seen like a myriad of responses but for me based on what you just said and even before you said that I was thinking of the theorist that talks about caring Mm -hmm. and the fact that you can care for someone but at the end of the day it matters how the person receives the care. And that what really should be focused on is somebody's reception of the care, not just the fact that you say you care for them. Mm-hmm. And I think in the similar way, I think it's unfair to say to Black women that we cannot say how we want to be protected. And some of that for me is wrapped up in this idea that at times, and I don't want to say for all Black men, but at times for Black men, to protect Black women is to replicate what white men do. 
And I personally don't need or desire for my partner, which I hope to be a Black man, to replicate the violent nature or patriarchy that's wrapped up at times with Mm -hmm. white maleness. And I think that like just replicating that can be problematic. And so I think that when when somebody like me says that's not necessarily protect, protecting Black women, is saying that does Black women receive that as protection or is it protection of male ego? And so some of that I think is really honest and like a powerful conversation. And I feel like I don't know that, as you said, I don't know that people have really started to grapple with that in that way. Yeah, because I think, so there's a rumor that somewhere in private, not that night, but somewhere in private prior to the Oscars, Will Smith had a conversation with Chris Rock and told him that his wife suffered from alopecia. Now, Chris Rock is saying he didn't know. He didn't know, which is, is he said, she said at that point, right? Mm -hmm. But my point being that that is a version of doing something to protect white women that I feel like most black women would think is okay to say, I'm going to pull this dude aside and let him know, hey, bro, cut that out. That's not it. Don't do that anymore. That offends my wife. That's not, that's making her feel uncomfortable. Not a threat, not a shakedown, not a confrontation, really more of a, I'm going to go in and say something to him so that you don't have to deal with the, the trauma of thinking about your medical condition. You don't have to go and try to confront some man. I'm going to go and I'm going to handle this. And I think that's respectable. However, I think the reason it, it made me realize that my reaction was more for me is because it comes from a place of that is what makes me feel better, right? Mm-hmm. However, I think what your comment was takes me to a, even a different place. I think about in our country, the United States, we have a history of what, what they used to call defending women's honor, right? And men used to go and shoot each other. Like, People used to duel over a woman's honor. Like, yo, get the guns, load them up, and we go and we count 10 paces, turn around and shoot. And somebody might die behind a woman's honor. And this idea of like hyper-masculine male violence that was primarily coming from white men. And that seems to, to your point, have been like adapted in some ways into how black men feel like they need to defend their women to say violence is required to defend the honor of my woman. But I think the reality is all of that came from really defending a man's own ego. And there might have been women back then and even up till today who would say, no, I want my guy to go slap somebody. I want my guy to go and and square up. But I don't think I'm convinced that's the majority of women. And the last thing I'll say, I guess, for now is that what I was disappointed in was some of the comments I heard around people saying, oh, you can't say the Oscars are so white anymore. That's the blackest thing that's ever happened at the Oscars. Don't equate violence to blackness, right? There's something that when you look at what that was, which is the man, quote unquote, defending the honor of his wife. When you look at what that was, the first thing I think of when I think about somebody defending their wife's honor is two white men dueling on a hill in Virginia, probably. Right. So, like, I'm not thinking that Will Smith going up and slapping Chris Rock is something black. But for some reason, even this thing that is really, again, in my humble opinion, steeped in whiteness is given this air of, hey, this is blackness. This is something that's black. 
because it's hyperviolent and because people associate blackness with violence. And that to me was sad. And one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why this was a terrible thing to happen. Yeah. And you offered a few things that I think we could definitely go in depth with if we wanted to talk about this the whole episode. But a few things that I'll say is like, one, what is the difference between a violent act and a violent disposition? And I think Mm -hmm. that what people have also, which I have seen Black men be vocal about, and I support this sentiment that you just shared. This was a violent act. I don't want to say that this means that Will Smith is a violent person or that this confirms that Black people or Black men are violent. I think that maleness and patriarchy, period, is wrapped up in like this prowess and showing like your physical ability to fight people like that. We even teach history by world wars. Like this idea of violence is wrapped up in culture, period. And primarily when we think about Western white culture. That is the way that like history is told. That's the way that we like talk about conquerors. And that language is so steeped in violence. And that is definitely something that is not as explicit in this conversation. And I think folding that into it, it is sad that then people utilize this moment to then affirm stereotypes. But as a tweet that I saw said, this didn't make anyone think that Black people were violent. This just confirms for people who already said that Black people were violent, that we're violent. And so this is just somebody looking for stereotype confirmation. This is not necessarily going to, at least I would believe that people who are already critical are aware of that. I mean, how many white males do we see murder people en masse? But yet we don't perpetuate this narrative that every single white man is violent. So as you said, there's definitely the need to separate Will Smith from Black people by nature. And critical race theory would have us question that, this essentializing of all Black people because of one act of a singular person. And then that makes me think of this other conversation that people are having about this happening in a white space. And the way that Black people should conduct ourselves in a white space. And I push back on that, though I oftentimes have that own my own reflection. If I'm going to argue with a Black person, I don't want to do it in certain spaces like my job. Just public spaces, i rather do it in private because we have been trained to not want to affirm stereotypes about ourselves. Yeah. But as all people, we should be able to live our lives and not have that fear that just because we're behaving in a way that is in line with a stereotype in a specific moment that we can't do it. And so I don't think that that conversation is fruitful, though I know that people are having it and then they're turning it into this stereotype confirmation. But as you already said, MP, I really want people to question and push back against those type of conversations. I don't really see any merit in any of that conversation beyond really the reflection on the idea that as Black people, we can't even really be our full selves with all of our flaws because of white spaces, right? Like the idea that I have to police myself Mm -hmm. even when I want to make a mistake. And again, I'm not saying that you should go around smacking people, but I'm saying if I choose to make a mistake and I like in that moment, I don't think it's a mistake and I choose to go hit somebody in the face, then to have to think about it from the lens of what are these white people going to think about me if I do that? It's like, 
how, other people don't have to think about that. If a white person had decided to go hit another white person on the Oscar stage, their only thought would have been, should I do this at the Oscars? Right? And if they had decided, I'm mad enough that I'm going to get this off at the Oscars, they would have done it. And we would have been, we still would have been talking about it, but it would have been a very different conversation from should Will Smith have done that in them white folks' Oscars? Because then we just sound like slaves. I mean, like, you did that in the massa house. Oh my goodness. Thank yeah. goodness. Good old Tyler Perry and Samuel Jackson and, and, and Denzel Washington was there to pull him aside. You know, it's, it's just like, yeah. come on, bro. Like, he made a mistake. He did a thing, but I also am not interested in him policing himself for the white folks. He's got enough money that if he never gets another dime from white people, I think he'll be fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if he wants to look at the situation because it's something that he would just do differently because he wants to deal with his anger differently, that's a right. whole other conversation, but not having to deal with it because it's white people. Just, I know people might think it's a far off comparison. But, you know, when a white person has a confrontation and I confrontation is not even the right word, has a situation with the police, mm -hmm. they are able to be angry. They are able to react. But mm -hmm. our expectation for black people is you have to be poised. You have to be correct. You have to be all these things in order to preserve your life, like right. to even be able to get the opportunity potential to see your day in court. We've seen countless amount of Black people who, because of a reaction and not even having a weapon, that they end up losing their lives. Whereas I've seen videos of white people being stopped by the police and literally driving their car while the police is in the doorway and getting hauled to jail and not having to lose their life. And so just always this expectation for us to be 100% perfect for our emotions to be a hundred percent regulated and we're people. And if we're people living in this time period, like I also wonder just for Will, as many of us that we've just lived through, and what I'm hoping is some of the hardest years many of us will ever experience in our life. And yeah. so I think that just that understanding, again, not to justify anyone's behavior, but we all have experienced trauma at this point with the pandemic with Black lives being killed and televised on TV and just the constant barrage of anti-Blackness that awaits us every day. And I just think about Solange's song, Mad, and I feel like I might have already <laughs> mentioned this on this pod, but she says, like, you have every right to be mad. And mm -hmm. he has every right to be mad. What he does with that anger, we could talk about, but at the very least, he has the right to be mad. Yeah, I read recently Will Smith's m memoir, Will, and... Oh, I haven't it, read it yet. It's really good, and it gave me a lot of perspective on him. And one of the things that he talked about, so he didn't go into all of the nitty-gritty and drama around his marriage, but he did talk about at one point having this revelation that mm -hmm. he could not be any and everything to his wife. He could not be his wife's everything and that she needed to go out and find what was going to make her happy because it could not be his job to make her happy. He could be a mm -hmm. part of her happiness, but he could not be the one to make her happy. Yeah. I say all of that to say we know that they went through a lot over the past couple of years with a man half Will Smith's age coming out and publicly saying he had been having sex with Will Smith's wife and that this, this, all that madness around August Alcina and 
all the ridicule that came along with that. And we made jokes about it probably on this podcast. I don't remember, but I'm sure <laughs> if we talked about it, then I made jokes about it. But at the end of the day, Chris Rock knew that Will was dealing with all of that. He also is the person who made the documentary about black women's hair. So, so I'm holding him responsible to a certain extent for some of this as well. I know everybody wants to take up for Chris Rock, but Chris Rock is a grown man who looked at the seating chart and decided to make a joke that was, in my opinion, in poor taste. And anytime you open your mouth about somebody else and they're there or present, you run the risk of what happened at the Oscars. Right or wrong, you can agree with me if you want about whether or not it should have happened. And I'm even saying I don't think it should have happened. I'm saying in the world we live in and in any construction of reality that you could think of, if you say something about somebody and they are present to hear it, they could punch you in the face. <laughs> and I don't think everybody is aware of that, but I think people need to be more conscious of that. Like you could get punched in the face at any moment in time. And I think that Chris Rock knew that, which is why people are like, was that planned? He looked like he planted his feet. Yeah. Cause when Will Smith walked up with him, he was like, I'm going to get punched in the face. So I should probably plant my feet. And I think that there's a, there's some uh, wisdom to just knowing that's going to sound weird to say, but there's some wisdom to knowing that you could always get punched in the face. The last thing I say, I don't know 95% of the movies that, that they were summoned at the Oscars anyway. So the one thing I hated was not that it stepped on the moments of all these winners. Cause I don't know none of them movies anyway. I hated that it stepped on some of the shine that would have went toward black creators and at that night like will smith won his first oscar ever and that tainted his win this will be in the history books of something that taints his own win yeah when he smacked chris rock he was actually smacking chris rock who was trying to announce the winner for an award that quest love a hip-hop icon had won and nobody even oh, realizes so that exactly so you there's things like that that I hate that it happened because there was so much black excellence that this took all of the attention away from that excellence just to look at the buffoonery of it all. So, you know, that kind of stinks, but nobody saw Coda and I'm not watching it. I have Apple TV plus and I'm not watching Coda. I do want to look at Jessica Chastain. I think one of the best actress oh, or yeah. this movie through the eyes of Faye something. It's a gospel, not gospel, a preacher's wife. Anyways, Gotcha. I do want to watch that. But nevertheless, I agree with you in that we weren't able to celebrate the Oscars being produced by a Black man that also like Will Smith winning his first Oscar, just everything that you said. One thing that I will say, though, is like Chris Rock's jokes, not to say that he can't expect people to be mad, but Chris Rock's jokes, as so many comedians, jokes are in poor taste. My sister sent me this video of Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes. Oh, my gosh. That man, if you want to talk about <laughs> horrible, oh my gosh, she made a joke. Basically, and Leo was right there that like Leo, <laughs> he dates women like so young that mm. by the time they got through the premiere of the movie that he was in, at the end of the movie, the date was too old for him. <laughs> and so it was really just a poor taste, which I think that's yeah. a brand of comedy that I think Chris Rock is a part of. But again, not to say that people won't be offended and you have to. But that's the, the thing. That's a joke. That if Leonardo DiCaprio had decided to get up and punch Ricky Gervais in the face, I would have been like, I get it. Not saying that I agree, not saying that it's the right thing. I'm not saying I love violence. 
I'm wanting to be more human than I'm seeing a lot of people being willing to be. I said this at work and people were like, what? I can see how Chris Rock got punched in the face. I'm sorry. I see it. I guess I was, I'm just raised differently. I understand. And I could very much see Ricky Gervais getting punched in the face for that joke. I don't think it should happen, but I could see it happen. So I just want to say like comedians make these types of jokes. Again, there's different opinions on what brands of humor people enjoy or think should be around. But I do think that comedians make distasteful jokes all the time. And then the last thing that I wanted to say is I also feel in some ways it is a reminder that while I love to engage in pop culture and pop culture Mm -hmm. critique, that at the end of the day, these celebrities are people. And I think sometimes they don't want us to remember that, but sometimes at the same time they do because they are so like immortalized and just idolized in this world and in this moment that at times I forget that they have reactions and emotions and that though it may have been something that Will was able to either accepted or forgave or condoned, we don't really know the relationship with August. We all had our opinions because it sounded outside of what many of us would want in our own relationship or would expect to be okay. And so I think that this felt for me that this was a bubbling up of Will feeling like he has been critiqued, criticized, made a fool of for the last couple of years. And my suggestion personally, I saw a thing that they're going to be on the Red Table Talk. I was like, please, no. We don't need another Will Smith crying meme. We don't need another Jada. Like, we don't need that. I don't know that that helps. Like, I feel just tell us less, share less, let us know less, say less. I don't know. Maybe that's the theme for this episode. Say less, please. Say less. So on that note, we will transition because as I said, we could talk about this for a whole episode, but we won't. We do think that it is important to talk about politics. And as MP has here, which is a cool segment name, but it sounds a little funny. Politics pop in. want to make space to talk about the hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is nominated to be a Supreme Court justice. And I teach a critical race theory course, and we meet early on in the week. And actually, a group that was presenting this week, they brought in a discussion around the hearings and some of the questions that were happening. And it was, I told them after, I'm like, I'm so proud of them because They utilize critical race theory as an analytical tool, not as a teaching pedagogy. Just slide a little note there. But as an analytical tool to see what was happening during the hearing and to critique some of the conversations around her nomination. And so I'm I know we'll get into that, but I'm excited to hear what you think, MP, and to engage our listeners in our thoughts around her hearings. First of all, I just thought it was really dope. President Joe Biden decided to nominate Katanji Brown-Jackson for this position and role. I think that uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is something that he had said he would do if he were given the opportunity. It was a campaign promise. Yeah, it's a campaign promise. And I, you know, one of those things where I'm just like, yeah, but are you going to, are you going to hold that promise? Are you going to keep that promise? And so definitely was excited to see that. I know Everyone, including me, has critiques of President Biden. But when somebody does something right, I think it's also okay to just say, hey, he did what he said he was going to do. 
And that's rare in politics. But, you know, beyond that, I think what one of the things that I think is the best about this is that there's not a valid way to question whether or not she's qualified. I think so many racist folks and people who just have racist tendencies and maybe don't even acknowledge it is that they were like, is she qualified? There are so many black women that would be qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. That's not a question we have to ask. And what we want to do now is just confirm that that she's the best person, but this is not a, a thing of, we pick somebody who's less qualified so that we can have a diversity hire. It does tick me off that has been some of the rhetoric on conservative uh, news outlets is that this is essentially a diversity hire and that this mm-hmm. person would not be a Supreme Court justice if they were white. And I don't think that's a valid statement at all, but obviously they don't dabble in truth in those networks. My favorite thing, and then I'll shut up, the favorite thing that I've seen was in the hearing, I think it was Ted Cruz. Now he's got this big blown up pictures of anti-racist baby, a book that I have issues with in general, but that is not for today. But he has these big blown up pictures of anti-racist baby, the book. And he's like, yo, do you agree with the author of this book that babies are racist? And I'm like, I, in my brain, when I heard the question, I was just like, I think you missed a lot of what the purpose of of that book is. And Kataji Brown Jackson had the best moment of what I consider to be black woman magic of just, she stopped and paused and looked at him. It was kind of just like, man, I could say so many things to you and none of them are going to help me get this job. Do I want to say them anyway? (laughs) I don't want to be in a news cycle for the next two weeks because I say this to you. And she does all this real fast. It's not like a long drawn out thing. She thinks what I'm imagining is all of that. And then just decides to say, no, I don't. (laughs) And like, I don't know. It's just like the, I used this word earlier for the Will Smith thing, but the buffoonery of these hearings, it's like, you could actually be using this as a moment to really vet this person and say, yes, we made the best choice for the Supreme Court. But instead you're doing things to please your base. And there's actually a clip of Ted Cruz then checking his Twitter right after he asked that question to see how Twitter was reacting. So it's like, all of this is fake, but I am happy for Katanji Brown Jackson. And so I got to bring in what my student shared with me. So I will just say that while I support these ideas, they definitely encourage them. And so they were bringing some of the tenets of CRT that we've talked about on this podcast before. And they brought in two points. They recognize that it's great that President Biden committed to this and made it happen. But they also brought in this idea of interest convergence that Mm -hmm. we know that Black women were very instrumental in him becoming president. And so in many ways, it's almost like, I'll give this to you, not to discredit Judge Brown Jackson and her capabilities. And I fold that into the like idea of intersectionality. And I think that they also talked about race as a social construction that despite her numerous qualifications, the main conversation is about her being the first Black woman. Mm. And it kind of takes over any other conversations about her experience. She's the first public defender to possibly sit on the court. And that is some experience that would help to bring in a different perspective. 
And one of my favorite quotes from class this week, a student said, if you just stripped the judge's names and you gave them all a number, that she would be the most qualified for the job. Society is blinded by only focusing on her race and her gender. And I thought that was so powerful that what I think some people can learn to understand, and I know you know this MP, is that while critical race theorists understand the power of race and racism in society, we don't want to be beholden to this for our entire life and everything that we do. As we talked about before, Will Smith should be able to be Will Smith. He doesn't have to always have to think about being a Black successful man and what that means for whatever action he does. And I think similarly for Judge Brown Jackson, it's like, would these questions about her opinion on Kavanaugh's hearings really apply if she wasn't a Black woman? If she came to this space with different social identity markers, would they be asking her these questions based on her experience, based on what she's done? I doubt it. And as you were saying, like there isn't the ability to focus on what she brings to the court. It's more focused on these conversations that are in the air right now. One, critical race theory in particular. And then there is some conversation that, again, my students brought to my attention that they were talking about her being soft on crime. And my students were like, the Supreme Court doesn't proceed over criminal matters. Right. That is not. It doesn't. Not it's if, okay. Yeah. It's not as if there's somebody going to be coming that is accused of trafficking drugs that's right. going to come before the Supreme Court. There's, they may deal with a Supreme Court larger issue related to sentencing related to a particular type of crime. But by the time things get to the Supreme Court, they're not going to be, quote unquote, soft on crime. And so just thinking about like the language that's weaponized against her is all steeped in her race and gender. And just thinking about this idea that there's like a threat that there's going to be also two Black people on the Supreme Court. They couldn't be any different. Clarence Thomas and Judge Brown Jackson are two different people in every sense of the word. That's two and different universes. So, yeah. And so I think this idea also is that not not all Black people think the same. And so this idea that there's two Black people, that doesn't mean anything in terms of they're not going to suddenly unite and Justice Thomas isn't going to suddenly overnight become a liberal. I don't think that's right. going to happen. Right. And, you know, I think one of the things that I was looking at, and I would have to to really reflect on this more before I said firmly that this is how I feel. But I know one of the things they were saying about Jackson was that she had been soft specifically on child pornography right. cases. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, that's almost a way of defeminizing her and there's a sentiment i'm not saying it's true but there is a sentiment that a lot of times people or society are sometimes easier on women when it comes to putting them through the ringer for different things and i don't think that's true but the sentiment is there that maybe sometimes women have it easier when it comes to things like that and so i feel like this is almost a way of defeminizing her and saying that we're going so hard on her because she's so unqualified and she's so offensive in this thing of she allows men to get away with child pornography. How could she doesn't even care about children? You throw the children in there and you get everybody up in arms. And they actually looked at the data and several articles were talking about how her, her sentencing and conviction and sentencing rates for folks who were convicted of that were equal to uh, her peers. 
but it's a tactic to try to change how people see Kataji Brown Jackson. I'm glad that she didn't allow any of that to fluster her in any way that I've seen at least. And I think that we are going to be hopefully in a place soon where we can look at this as something to, to really celebrate. I do think to your point, this is a, a it's tricky because this is a, an example of interest convergence. However, I firmly believe, and I know you do too, T, that, that this could have always happened, right? Like, I think that's one of the things that's tricky about interest convergence is that it's not that we're saying that when interests aligned, Joe Biden had to go far and wide and search under the couch cushions to find a black woman who could be a Supreme Court justice so that he could give something to black people and to black women. We're saying that, unfortunately, these sorts of celebratory moments and these sorts of things that are happening only happen when interests converge, even though they could have always happened. Like there have been a lot of black women judges over the history of our nation that could have been Supreme Court justices, but this is the first time it is happening because of interest convergence. Yes. And I believe that there's only been two women in like the history of the court, two black women that have been considered for Mm -hmm. to sit on the court. And while I can confidently say that You and I both vehemently are against child porn. What I do want to clarify is that what people are showing is that this soundbite can seem really like, okay, Judge Brown Jackson is soft on child porn. What is actually been shown is that there has been critiques of the U.S. Sentencing Commission about the the mandatory minimums for some offenders. And she clarifies that There are some situations, and I'll give an example, which I hope is helpful, in that like a teen may send another teen pictures that are explicit of that teenager and that it's considered child porn. I'm not saying that it isn't child porn, but that there isn't necessarily a pedophilia associated with it. Whereas if there is a person who is going and producing or seeking out child's pornography that is, let's say, older, just for this example, not to say that there cannot be people who have that disposition at a younger age, but let's say it's somebody in their 20s who is looking for that, Mm -hmm. producing it or recreating it, then that is a different nature, but that the sentencing doesn't really clarify or distinguish between those differences. And so that's what she's been talking about. However, what in the day and age that we live in, where there are these conversations that don't allow for that nuance for the public to hear it, that I can understand people being like, oh, she's soft on that. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. But there is more to that than it appears. And that is why judges are put in these positions to make some of that difference. We just saw it with the sentencing of Kim Potter. The judge said, oh, she wasn't, though somebody is dead, there isn't the same intention than somebody who planned a murder. I may disagree with the sentence that Kim Potter received, but the judge had the latitude to decide, okay, while she's charged with manslaughter, I'm going to only give her, I think it's three years. And so I think in the same way that the judges are allowed to consider the facts of that case, Judge Brown Jackson does the same thing and her sentencing hasn't been 
much different than judges who have also taken the same type of cases and facts into consideration. Right. I think you hit Danelle on the head with the idea that it's about a soundbite. And I think the unfortunate thing about where we are politically in our country is that everything right now is about polarizing the people, making everybody run to their side so that there's no solidarity anywhere around any issue. Everything is a battle. Everything is a fight. And while I'm always down for the critical fighting, the, the, the back and forth, I'm always down for it when it's going to make progress. I get, I, I am getting exhausted when it seems as if we're only doing it to polarize people. Like we're not actually trying to make progress. We're actually just trying to polarize people. Yeah. Which I think leads into, because this other thing I want to talk about is going to be super duper short. And um, so we can wrap up by talking about Katanji Brown-Jackson again, if we need to. But, you know, a couple episodes ago, one episode ago, I don't even remember at this point, we talked about SB 148, which was uh, essentially this white fragility bill that was being considered in Florida where you could not teach certain types of topics around race or racism if they uh, made white folks feel uncomfortable and made people in the classroom feel uncomfortable. We had a long conversation about that. And then I found out today as I was like getting ready for uh, us to record, I was Google searching kind of an update on where that stood and realized that it had died with the rules committee. And it really got me thinking. I know sometimes bills just die because people don't believe in them. They need to be refined. I understand that. But the kind of skeptical conspiracy theory part of me was like, was that ever a real bill (laughs) or was that just something to polarize the state to get the governor in the good graces of the hyper conservative kind of Trumpian crowd who is the crowd he is expecting to vote for him when he runs for president in the next election? Because that is something that has been talked about broadly and widely and It just made me wonder. There was a a statement recently in a book that I was reading, basically, that when it's election season, that people feel like that's when the knives come out, that we can actually get along, work together, do business together, have some level of solidarity around issues when it's not an election season. But then when it's election season, the knives come out. I bring that up to say, because of the way our world has worked since the election of Obama, we're never not in election season anymore. People have been wondering what is different after 2008, something changed. And it feels like the world has been in this constant tizzy, especially since 2016. But I really marked the start of it at, at 2008. And I feel like what it is, is honestly racism. People had such a violent and vehement reaction to Obama being president that we now don't ever leave the election cycle. Everyone is always trying to rile their base, trying to bring everybody to their corners and have us in a standoff. And because of that, there's almost no chance at this kind of idea of uh, a racial reckoning or racial reconciliation. As much as people talked about that in 2020, it can't happen because every issue is a go to your corners and put up your dukes issue. And that's not helpful. Yeah. And as historians have um, argued for decades that usually when there is what seems like racial progress, there 
is, you know, a backlash to that. And as you said, MP, I think we're just living in that backlash and the backlash is to me much more severe than the alleged progress. So we'll see how long this <laughs> uh, continues to whip us in the face, but I totally agree with you. And so I think I'm done talking about Judge Brown Jackson because I'm sure we will revisit this conversation for sure when she's confirmed, which is the hope. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap up on a much lighter note. We've laughed throughout this podcast. I think that's at least uh, a good marker of us having a little fun. But we're going to end on a much lighter note with a couple of shows that we've been watching. So full transparency, I'm okay with spoilers, but I have not seen Bridgerton season two yet. But what I have been watching religiously is Bel Air. I'm not up to date, though. I won't spoil too much of Bel Air. Yeah, I'm like, we at, start, which we can start wherever you want to start, though. I'm at the episode where just after Ashley gets like the job that she wants and they're about to have that dinner with her colleague. Oh, Hillary. Oh, yeah. What did I say? Ashley. Sorry. Yes. Hillary. Okay. I was so, like, Ashley can't work. So that's a violation. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So, uh, yeah. Hillary. And so I, I guess I'll just talk about Bridgerton real quick and then we can get to Bel Air because it's more substantive. So we can come back to Bridgerton. Bridgerton's back. Definitely binged it over the weekend. So I look forward to hearing what you think. I think that it's interesting because there are two female leads who are, I believe, of Indian or like Desi descent. And so that has been like pretty cool to see like that representation. One of the girls is on sex education. And so she's like the lead this season. And it focuses on another Bridgerton sibling without giving things away. So it has been interesting. It's still, I don't think it's as good as the first season, which I feel like all shows have a challenge at times with comparing to the first season that you see them. Sometimes it gets better, but I think this sense, I'm like, okay, it was good, but I feel like the first season had something that made it a little different. So I look forward to you watching it and then maybe we'll revisit it because I think that will Absolutely. allow for a better conversation. So, okay. One thing that I have to say is that I saw that the season was coming out. If you remember our first conversation about Bridgerton, Netflix is so trifling, bro. <laughs> like I logged into my Netflix account. The picture that came up was Every black person that could have possibly been in this show was in one picture together looking at the camera. And I was like, oh, snap, like they finally doing like this all black. Everybody is like we up. And then I saw somebody reviewing the season and I turned it off before the spoilers. But then they started talking about the other like Bridgerton, like the, the other white person that is now looking for, you know, a partner or whatever. And I was like, why are we still talking about these little white girls? Like, I thought we was doing the black season. I thought this was the black season. And then I remembered that Netflix always throws me for the okie doke. They always go get all the black people, put them in a picture and show it to me to try to get me to watch stuff. And they got me last time. That's how I started watching Bridgerton. But I'm going to go back and watch it again. But I was like, they got me again. So I was frustrated. Yeah, the queen's still there. And then I can't remember her name, but... That older woman that like was wise and she was helping the Duke last time. And now she's helping these um, sisters who are new on the scene. And so there is it is a diverse cast. Like I feel out of all the shows I pretty much watch on Netflix. This is like mm. the most r racially and ethnically diverse cast, which yeah, we can get into because I'm curious yeah. about 
your take. So once you watch it, sorry, we'll, we'll come back to it. Yeah. The other, I have a question though, since you did finish it. Are there as many sex scenes as there were in this first season? There's maybe two sex scenes that are like notable, but I don't think it's as racy. And again, maybe it's because we saw the first season and you're like, oh, that was really racy, like uncomfortable. Yeah, it was, it got like nasty. Like it was not even just the sex (laughs) scenes because the sex scenes was a lot. I felt like it was, there was a few episodes where it was like every episode, multiple times in the episode. But then also the conversations they were having, no spoilers for season one, mainly because I don't want to talk about that on this podcast because I have people that love me that listen to this and they don't want to hear me talking about that. But like, (laughs) there was like nasty conversations about just like pregnancies. And I was just like, yo, like I'm watching this with my mom because I didn't know that none of this was in the thing. So I was watching this with my mom. Well, like when she was trying to get pregnant and then. Oh, okay, okay. You know what I'm saying? Like that part without saying too much. That part was nasty to me because I was watching it with my mom. So I wasn't really trying to hear all of that happening while I was watching the show with my mom. So I was There's asking never... because I don't want to watch this weekend when I go see my mom if it's going to be okay. doing that. I think as long as you watch it up to like episode five, you're okay. Okay. Yeah. But I think like, watch it. Maybe we'll watch three, four episodes and then I'll leave her. Yeah. The tail of the students get a little spicier. Okay, yeah, because we're not, I'm not on that. I can watch that so with my wife. You might not want to watch it with your mom, yeah. Okay, okay. And then Bel Air. I think Bel Air has probably been one of my favorite things this year uh, so far, to be honest. Okay. I didn't know how I was going to feel about it. I'm not one of those people who are against reboots. I think if I'm only against reboots when it's done terribly. Like one of the best shows of all time was Boy Meets World. And I don't know what Disney was doing, but they launched Girl Meets World. And it is like probably one of the worst things that I've ever seen in my life. So when you do a reboot and it's bad, then I am against it. But I'm not just against reboots in general. And I love this reboot because it's a dramatic retelling of Fresh Prince. It's not the same storyline. It's the same concept with a lot of different stories. I'm not going to spoil too much of it for those who are not caught up on it, but it is a Peacock show. And what I love about it is that they have nods and and kind of Easter eggs for specific episodes of the original Fresh Prince, but it is really dramatic. There's drugs and there's cussing and there's spicy stuff that's happening, but it's still the same spirit of Fresh Prince. And so I really enjoy watching it because I'm able to see. So like, I, this is not a spoiler, but like everybody knows if you know the original Fresh Prince of Bel-Air will play basketball for Bel-Air Prep. And in one episode, there's like this episode where he's playing ball against some school in Malibu, like Malibu Prep or something like that. And there's this guy that's like this really dope basketball player from Malibu Prep. And he has a daughter. And so Will Smith sees this guy and he's wants to play him and they they have this like competition thing going but then will sees him getting a haircut sees his daughter and gets soft and is like oh maybe i should let him win because the scouts are going to see him and he needs to be able to provide for his daughter and it's this really touching moment of the guy being mad at will because i don't want you to go soft on me anyway that's not important you can go look that episode up if you haven't seen it i love that episode But what was cool was that in one of the first episodes of 
Bel Air, they're playing against Malibu Prep, and there's a black boy that's light-skinned that looks like the guy from the original Fresh Prince of Bel Air who was at the Malibu Prep school. Will's character looks at him and goes, are you really from Malibu? And he looks back at Will and goes, are you really from Bel Air? And it's just a nod to that episode. And if you don't know, if you're not a nerd like me and remember literally every episode of Fresh Prince, you would miss it and not think about it. But I saw that and I was like, oh, that's a nod to such and such episode. There's another episode where Will says something and ends up crying and hugging Uncle Phil. And I know that's a nod to the episode where Will is like mm -hmm. mad about his dad and cries like that. Like there's so many beautiful little moments and nuggets like that without them recreating entire episodes of Fresh Prince. And that's why I love to watch it. Yeah, like the crazy thing is I heard such bad reviews before watching it. And I feel like a lot of people similar to I think you and I are actually enjoying it. So I don't know if it was an issue with like people wanting it to be a comedy, which I appreciate that they didn't. I would say maybe Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was more like a dramedy. So like mm -hmm. a bit of a drama, but of course, a lot of comedy where this is more of a drama. Like they're like the comedies way like less present though it might be there for certain moments and so i don't know if that's the like the issue that a lot of the reviewers were having when the few first episodes dropped but yeah similar to you like i've been enjoying it i haven't been like as like hard on watching them on time but it is mm -hmm. one of the shows that like i have been enjoying i do feel like i appreciate their spin again because it is trying to replicate and i think for me, that's what I have a challenge with sometimes with some remakes, which is it literally is trying to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think for this generation and this moment, what they have changed and the way that they've revamped it has been necessary. And I appreciate that there is more of, I won't say who, in case people will get offended by the spoiler or be upset, sorry. But I like that there's more like a villainous nature to some of the characters. Yeah, and yeah. They have like, updated the conversations that are going on they seem very now they seem very much in the moment which Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was at that time like it was speaking to things that were going on at that moment and so I feel like this is very much in line with conversations that are happening right now okay question yeah was that like alpha situation like similar the fraternity scene yeah to I, okay, because I was shocked that like I did not see this on Twitter. I don't I didn't really look necessarily, but I'm like people were so in upset and insecure when Tiffany wore AKA paraphernalia. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is was like to me way more a nod to Alphas and not saying okay, so, Oh God. Okay, so let me see. I don't know how many bros listen to this podcast. So I'm, let me say first that I might be wrong and I'm gonna let that breathe. Then I'm gonna say it's different because what is the problem is wearing the letters. And to my knowledge, I was watching that episode closely. I don't think Uncle Phil's character ever actually wore the letters. He claimed to be an alpha, but like the, the chants and things that I know to be the core, like alpha chants, the steps and things that we do that most alphas would know and different things like that. He didn't do any of that stuff. I never saw yeah. him. I never saw him throw up the fire. I never saw anybody look like they were doing the handshake. No, nothing that would have been like an issue because it's, yes, you can pretend to be an alpha on camera, but you better not put them letters on. 
Okay. I don't know what people were wearing, which maybe that's the difference. It is because that was with with Insecure. They were specifically mad because she had on AKA, like the letters. Okay. 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 And and that is not okay. Like she, you cannot do that. And I know she's, I'm an actress. Wear pink and green, take the letters off. And I'm saying that as somebody who's married to an AKA. And I hope that I'm saying that correctly, but she can't do that. Like you have to not do that. That's not a thing. Because I was like, okay, this is like explicit. Because like with most shows, they'll make up a Greek org based on like different letters that are like a mixture of Delta, AKA there'll be a mixture, which is- You can look at it usually and go, oh, that's supposed to be the alphas. and, And they'll have the stereotypical behavior and steps and different things. Yeah. Kind of how they did in like Stump the Yard. They had like the guys running around doing the snake thing. And it was like, okay, that's supposed to be the alpha. But it wasn't like a bunch of dudes that are just dancers wearing alpha phi alpha. Yeah. And I'll have to send you, this is for another time, but in This Is Us, one of the characters is like um, Q. But I don't know, that seemed pretty genuine. But I have to watch a scene now (laughs) because I think that they were like wearing apparel but honestly i don't know so we'd have to also look up to see if the actor is in that organization because if they are it's okay yeah which is interesting but anyways i also don't like necessarily have the um authority to have this conversation so i'll also say that but i was just curious because that was a moment in bel-air that i was like oh interesting and just thinking about the backlash that insecure yeah but i but i also don't know I'm just saying that when we were talking about the Will Smith and Chris Rock conversation, where I'm from, wearing letters of an organization that you don't belong to for any reason is something that could get you hit. And I'm just not condoning that. I'm not. For all of the old heads that would say that alphas would not assault anybody, I absolutely agree. I'm just saying that in college, that would have been a really big issue that could have led to... um, confrontation if you're white i know and not to call you out if you're white listening to this you probably were just like wait what but i know in college when i some of my white friends they would go to like parties for other fraternities sororities and you would come out and you would be wearing like a t-shirt of the fraternity that just had the event my wife cannot wear any of my stuff that's not a thing she can't go out of the house in my alpha sweater that's not a thing so I think for anybody who's listening who doesn't understand Black Greek culture, that's that's just, it's a little bit more serious than maybe what you're thinking it is. And that is why we're having this conversation. So maybe we should have led with that, but that's important to note. I also don't wear my wife's stuff, but I thought that shit would go without saying because I'm like 6'5 and 250 pounds. So I'm not going to fit in that AKA sweater. They make sweaters that size, but my wife does not have that size. But Anyway, I think Bel Air is amazing. I think it's going to continue to be uh, amazing. I hope that it gets more and more seasons. In that way, but it continue to see shout outs to episodes of Fresh Prince of Bel Air because I think that's like really the coolest part for me. And we'll maybe do an actual breakdown of the whole season once the season finishes and we can, and we both watched it and we can talk about some of the drama and madness. The last thing I do want to say about it though. I really loved the way they did the casting in the original Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and in a lot of TV shows from like the 90s, Black families were just often, not always, often just whatever color they could find. And it didn't matter what the parents looked like. The kids was just all over the rainbow spectrum. So you had Philip Banks, who was like kind of light skinned, and then you had the dark skin of Viv. 
and then Hillary was light skinned, but Ashley was dark skinned, and Carlton was dark skinned, and then Will was light skinned, but his mom was dark skinned, and the, it was all over the place. And I know that fa- black families are a lot of different colors. It does happen though, but yeah, yeah. it happens. <laughs> but it was just, it just always seemed like there was never any like rhyme or reason for it. Like, I, anyway, my point in bringing that up is that they didn't try to do the thing where they said only light skinned people are beautiful. And so all the women on this show are gonna be yes. light skinned. They have a dark skinned Uncle Phil. Dark skin Viv, dark skin Hillary, dark skin Ashley. I love it. And they try to not do traditionally, like not again, dark skin women are gorgeous always. But I know that what they also did was choose darker skinned women who were not. This is, might sound problematic, so I might edit it out, but they're not what maybe people would think of as traditionally like overly gorgeous. Like I think Hillary's character is beautiful. But they did a close-up on her at one point, and I was like, oh, she has some blemishes in her face. And I was like, I like that. I kind of like that. Even the Lisa character, she's beautiful. She's cute. And I, I think that's great that they chose somebody. I think she's thicker, too. That's what I was about to say. I think it's yeah. great that they chose somebody who's a little bit thicker. It wasn't like this skinny, stereotypical character for that, for that role. And so I liked the casting because it was, of course, all the people are still gorgeous. It's Hollywood. But it, it wasn't like, we're going to do this in this very stereotypical way where everybody is a a model and of a certain size. It it just, to me, spoke a little bit more to the inclusion that they wanted to have represented in the show. There's some LGBTQ kind of representation as well that I won't spoil because I don't want people to be mad at me, but that's kind of dope. So, Yeah, so watch it. So next time we talk about it, you'll be able to um, think about what we are sharing. Anything else you got for this episode, T? No, I think that's it. It was a great conversation. Glad to be back. For sure. Glad to be back. And I definitely am happy to be crawling out of some of the madness of the past few months. Like I said, my, I know that I was talking about my dad, but even beyond that, T, I was sharing with you, I had a car accident in late January. I had to buy two new cars. A lot of other things have happened as well. So You're dissertating, you know? Oh, don't even, I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> okay, sorry. But <laughs> definitely. I know it's triggering. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's been a lot going on. So, so this is always one of those spaces that I cherish because it gives me some time to, to just think and talk and have a little bit of fun, but it's still intellectual, so. We appreciate y'all for listening. We hope that y'all enjoyed this episode. We hope you'll share this with somebody if you feel so inclined. I know I have a few people in my life who just recently found out that I host this podcast, which is weird, but they have been enjoying catching up on all the old episodes. And so um, if you share this with somebody, I think that they will definitely cherish it and appreciate it because me and T are really dope. Uh, But (laughs) we will see y'all for episode 37. This has been episode... 36. Mm -hmm. Peace. Bye.